The Bible shows that our root problem is that we love our sin rather than God's holiness. It's a matter of the heart, and the only remedy that goes deep enough is the new birth, which gives us new hearts that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. Today's message is called Jesus is the Savior. We'll be studying John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. Now, a legend is told uh, of a traveler who sought to circle the planet, uh, but found himself, as he was along in his travels one day, trapped in, of all things, quicksand. And uh, this is not a true story, it's a legend, but as the legend says, he began to sink and suddenly Confucius walked by and said, Confucius say, it is evident man should avoid such sticky situations. Uh, but then he kept walking. And, and so then suddenly Muhammad walks by and Muhammad says, alas, it is the will of Allah. But then he went on his way. Uh, then Buddha came by and said, let this man's dilemma be an illustration for many. Uh, as the man's reaching out, Buddha walked away. Well, then Krishna came by and looked down and said, better luck next time, and then he walked away. Uh, But then Jesus Christ came by and without a word simply reached out, took the man by the hand, and pulled him out. Uh, I use that as an opening illustration uh, to remind us that the world offers its ways to salvation, and it always, listen to me, it always has some type of human effort, some type of religious action or activity that we do, thereby we're saved. Yet only Christianity says, no, 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 no. God has done the work from first to last, and he has pulled us from certain death and condemnation, and he's brought us to life and salvation. And so as we open up John chapter 3, we're continuing a section of scripture uh, where Jesus is speaking to, of all people, a very religious man. And he's speaking to this religious man about what it means to be saved. And what we're going to learn today is, I'll put it on the screen, this really important idea that the gospel is at the same time uh, both incredibly simple and yet it's eternally profound. We're going to learn that today, that the gospel is uh, so simple and yet so profound. Now, in our culture, we live lives that seem to be complex and yet very shallow. We live our lives just hollow meaning, and and yet we think of our lives as very complicated. But what is simple is often very deep, and what is deep is often very simple. Think about sunsets, for example. You know, people actually drive out to the beach. We're going to do it at the end of the month. And they actually drive out to watch a sunset. They actually park their car, get out, and they set up a table and chairs, and they sit and they take pictures and selfies and and record it and hopefully don't use binoculars, but they watch the sun as it sets. And and I'm curious to this because they don't do that at midday. I don't see people at midday taking their lunch break and sitting down outside just watching the sun, right? Not a smart idea. Unless it's an eclipse, then people do that. Uh, But this seems to be something that is so attractive and beautiful, and yet isn't there one every day? Isn't this something you can get 365 days out of the year? Why is today's so special? Because it's simple, and yet by looking at it, it's so beautiful, it's so profound. 
And so for many of us, we live lives that are very complex and, and very shallow, yet what's important is simple and deep. Love, for example, shouldn't be complex. It shouldn't be shallow. Love is simple. Love is deep. Uh, and so what happens is we begin living our lives in shallow, complicated pursuit of what is simple and deep, and we find that we're mining in the wrong, uh, in the wrong fields, right? We're, we're, we're writing a novel where we lost the plot. We're singing a song, as it were, and we forget the chorus. Many of us today, even you this morning, may be living a life where you're seeking meaning, you're seeking purpose, you're seeking depth, and yet you're doing so in a shallow and complex way. And so one of the verses that's the most well-known, most celebrated, most familiar, not just to Christ followers, but to Western culture, stands before us this morning with, with great simplicity and yet great depth. And one of the dangers that we can have, what do they call it, familiarity breeds contempt? Uh, we can read this verse and kind of go, I already know that. That's elementary, uh, Watson. That, that's, that's for the Sunday school. That, the kids are learning that stuff. Let's go on to deeper stuff, Pilgrim. Let's get into the deep stuff of the word. And yet what we don't realize is the depth is there as we continue the, to plumb the depths of the, what Paul says in, in Ephesians 3, 8, uh, that are the inexpressible depths of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. And so uh, we're going to not wave off this verse as simplistic, uh, but deep and simple. And so to set the stage for us uh, in the text this morning, remember, we have to kind of go back a little bit. Remember, this conversation is taking place at night. Most likely, Jesus and this religious leader, Nicodemus, are sitting together in the cool of the evening. Um, they may be on a roof of a home in Jerusalem uh, talking about important issues of the day, and Nicodemus brings up this idea where Jesus begins to speak about salvation. Uh, Nicodemus, we learned um, a long time ago, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling leadership of 70 men in Israel. We learned that he's wealthy. Uh, we learned that he's a teacher uh, and he's a Pharisee. He's in the camp of those uh, who studied and implemented the Torah, the mission of the Talmud. And so this man of all men is counting on keeping the law and thus by keeping the law, I'll be righteous and accepted by God. But see, there's someone on the scene that intrigues him and that challenges him and that's Jesus. Uh, here, he sees something unique about this controversial rabbi. And he says, this guy's healing people. He's doing miracles. And it causes Nicodemus to begin to acknowledge that God's got to be with this guy. And so it picks his curiosity about who Jesus really is. So as they're sitting together, um, Jesus explains with three emphatic, trustworthy statements that, hey, listen, the only way to see the kingdom, the only way uh, is to be born again. And you guys remember this, Nicodemus, um, he didn't understand. Remember, as Jesus said that, Nicodemus is picturing a grown man kind of being born again, and he says, that seems problematic and physically, I don't know, impossible, so how's that gonna happen? And Jesus is like, okay, he's not getting it, um, and so he uses the analogy of the wind uh, and says, hey, the wind, like salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, it's invisible, it's uncontrollable, and yet you see the effects of it. And so Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And so then Jesus says, well, let me use an illustration. He speaks about the Son of Man, uh, ascending and descending. He says, that's the only one who has the authority to speak on this. I'm the son of man. And yet it doesn't seem like Nic Nicodemus still is understanding that. Have you ever talked to a staunch religious person? It's sometimes hard to get through to them, to get to the root of it. And so then Jesus begins to, in verse 14, use an illustration, an Old Testament story that would be very obscure 
just on the surface, yet this Old Testament teacher would be very familiar with it. And he uses this story right out of the book of Numbers about a lot of dying people and a snake made out of bronze lifted up on a pole. And he uses that as an illustration to speak about his own salvation from the cross. Now, most Jewish historians and Torah scholars are dumbfounded by the story that Jesus alludes to and that we're going to read today. But that's because, listen, it doesn't make a lot of sense apart from the cross, right? We have the advantage being on this side of Calvary that we can understand the the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Uh, But see, without understanding the light of the cross, then the Old Testament can be very confusing. That's why, personally, I'm not interested in sitting down with a Jewish scholar who's not a believer in Christ, right, to hear all of their wisdom if it's not rooted in the personal work of Jesus, right? I'm not going to sit down at a Seder dinner with someone who's not a believer and learn about, like, Jewish history if I don't see it in light of the cross. All that is is really just kind of a decent meal with misinformed people. And if that's what I wanted, a a meal with misinformed people, I don't know, that's a family reunion. So um, today, we're going to see this odd, obscure, Old Testament story alluded to by Jesus in the passage of Scripture that we have the most known verse uh, in Christendom. And so how simple it is and yet how profound. So if you're taking notes today, here's three things I want you to jot down, our outline for today. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, those who were bitten by the snake. I can't help it, I'm a pastor. They all have bees. I'm sorry. Just go with it. Uh, Those who were bitten, those who are believing, verses 16 through 18, and then those who are bare. We will find that Many are bitten, some are believing, and yet all are laid bare and exposed. So look at verse 14 again with me. Verse 14 says, and as, that's an important word, circle that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Jesus here points us to a story about Moses, the wilderness, and poisonous snakes. What do snakes have to do with Jesus on the cross? Well, more than you'd think. So to understand this, keep your place there, unless you're swiping on a screen. Uh, Go with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. Now, if you don't know where Numbers is, go to the first book of your Bible, Genesis, and then turn right to Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. Now, as you're turning there, let me just tell you a little backstory. I hate snakes. I hate snakes. Anyone here this morning, are you friendly with me and you hate snakes? Is there anyone here who loves snakes? Let me see your hand. All right, awesome. <clears throat> we're, not, we're not judging or anything. So snakes and I have a little backstory. When our family lived in West Bradenton, we were on a property where I was walking into the backyard one day and I was barefoot because I'm Floridian. And uh, I I walk into the backyard. All of a sudden, I feel this stinging pain on my toe, my pinky toe, you know, your little toe. And I look down, and there is a a corn snake attached to my pinky toe biting me. Now, I get it. They're non-venomous. But your mind doesn't know that. and doesn't. You don't sit there and go, yeah, Wikipedia says this kind of snake is (laughs) non-venomous. All you know is there's a huge black snake attached to your toe. Okay, so I screamed like a middle school girl, and... um, <clears throat> Jen comes running out, and uh, it, it, was, it, was like tra- it was very traumatic for me. A um, couple weeks later, this is a true story, a couple weeks later, we're in, um, 
I'm coming home from teaching at youth group and Jen calls me. There's a snake in London, our baby, at that point she was a baby, uh, a snake in her bedroom. She's in her bassinet sleeping. There's, how did the snake get in our house? It wasn't the same snake, uh, but there's a snake in her, in, so I come running in with a hammer. The snake gets into the closet. We can't find it. That night didn't go too well. Uh, and then it ended up sneaking out through the AC line and got outside. So we never found that snake. A few weeks later, same house, different snake. I go to open the front door, and apparently, I'm leaving for the day. Apparently, a snake had gotten up into the door jam, all right, above the door. <laughs> and so, yeah, no. All right, so I unlock, open the door. As I start the day, snake falls on my head. True story, falls on my head, all right? It's attacking my feet, my babies, and my head, all right? And so, listen, that whole, like, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. You know that whole thing? <laughs> all right, listen. I had to have decaf for like three days after that. All right, my day was ready and roaring after that one. Uh, and so uh, me and Snakes, we, we're not friends. We're not fans, all right? Uh, but nothing that I've gone through compares with the headline that I read this week. Let me show you this um, headline. We got it, media guys? Local pastor loves donuts. That's not it. That is true, but that's not it. It's the next one. This is a real headline. Snake slithers out of car's air vent as Virginia woman is driving. Can you imagine? I'm not going to show you a picture of it. But she's driving along, and a snake comes through the air vent <laughs> while she's on the interstate. Oh, man. I mean, texting while driving. Yeah, snake in the car. All right, so whoever that Virginia woman is, all right, she wins. All right, my story, stories are not as awful as that. There's a story in the Old Testament where snakes come out and begin biting people, and people are dying. And God gives Moses a very odd command, but it makes a lot of sense on this side of the cross. Look at Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they, the people of Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. What happens when you get discouraged? You get mad at the Lord and you get mad at your spiritual leader. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. All right, complaining, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to God that we not complain, but that we show gratitude. And so verse six says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Okay, this is a crazy situation. It sounds like a bad B movie, but it's in the Bible. What do we do now? There's snakes coming out, they're attacking people, people are dying. Verse eight says, the Lord said, or verse seven rather, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So there's a heart of, of confession and repentance, that's good. When we complain, we need to confess that. So Moses prayed for the people, he intercedes for them, which is often his work. And then, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, okay, here's what you're to do. And this seems kind of uh, counterintuitive to me, right? I would, if I were God, I'd say, okay, uh, let's get this little serum. It's anti-venom and go ahead and, uh, and make a cut and let's bleed out and let's give them the anti-venom. They'll be healed. Well, here's what he tells Moses to do. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, 
he lived. Huh. I don't understand on this side of Calvary what's happening. I just see a snake on a pole made out of bronze, and I go, why is that in the Bible? Strange story indeed. But this is a picture, what theologians call typology, a type, an example of the cross. Now, leading up to the cross, the Jews were so enamored by this story and by the snake that they actually began worshiping it. Uh, later in 2 Kings 18.4, King Hezekiah actually makes some reforms and he rips down and breaks some of these items. And one of them is a bronze serpent that the people were worshiping. Interesting, huh? A snake on a pole. And if you bring that snake on a pole, it brings medicinal value. Chris, I think we've got a picture of something. I think we see something like that in modern culture. A snake on a pole that heals you. Interesting. I wonder where that came from. Why is it a brass serpent, right? Why not a clay serpent? Why not a gold serpent? Why not a wooden serpent? Well, brass in the Bible is always symbolic of judgment. The serpent is symbolic of sin. So this was symbolic that God had judged their sin. And by looking upon the pole, they didn't die, but they were healed. The snake made by Moses, as you note, was similar in nature to the snakes that had bitten the people. And so Moses was to lift the snake, and those who were affected by the venomous bites just look at the snake on the pole, and the effects of the venom were reversed. No anti-venom, no bloodletting, no surgery, no amputation needed. The remedy, church, was so profound and yet so simple. Can't you, in your mind's eye, picture someone laying there saying, this is stupid. This is too simple. I'm not looking at the pole. You can't prove that scientifically. I need more information than that. How is that going to help my present condition? And yet this is the story Jesus tells this Old Testament Pharisee to school him on the power of the gospel. And so let's turn back to John chapter 3. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, me, Jesus, be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus draws the parallel to the cross. Now, let's look at verses 16 through 18 and see those who are believing. He then says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As my wife Jen and read that earlier and I just read it now, I almost don't need to finish the verse. You know the verse. You've heard the verse. This is what many call the Mount Everest of Scripture. Almost every American can quote verse 16. You see guys at football games, baseball games, Quidditch matches. I mean, wherever you go, they're holding up the sign, John 3.16. I don't know if there's any ladies here who have ever shopped at Forever 21. Uh, If you're in your 30s or 40s, you tend to shop at Forever 21. Um, I'm just kidding. So at the bottom of your bag, I don't know if you noticed this, but John 3.16. It's kind of hidden there in print. Anybody here ever been to In-N-Out Burger? In-N-Out Burger. Yes, Christians. All right, good. The bottom of your cup, hopefully you looked at this before you filled it with Coke, uh, John 3.16. It's at the bottom of the cup. Uh, Now, the reason this verse is so well-known is because it really is the simplest gospel statement in all of Scripture. If you have this verse, many theologians say you have enough. Martin Luther called John 3.16, here's what he said. He calls it the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. Uh, Spurgeon said this, if we never had another gleam of love from uh, from God's face again, 
we could live on this one text. Uh, this verse, we, we could spend the rest of 2018 just plumbing the depths of John 3.16. And so we're going to do that. No, no, no. Uh, we're going to finish the verse today. But I want to look at three incredibly important and biblical truths about this verse. So if you're taking note, I really ask that you would jot these three down uh, and let's understand these or take a picture of the screen as they come. Number one, uh, no one is beyond God's love. Notice that Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his son. For God so loved what? Say it out loud. The world. Okay, the word for world here does not mean planet earth. He's not saying uh, God so loved the third rock from the sun that he gave it. No, Jesus is not Superman. He's not an Avenger. He's not trading his life to save mankind. That's not the idea here. Neither does the word world uh, refer to the world system or of ideology, uh, of, of, of philosophies and values. Okay? In 1 John 2, we're told not to love the world, and that's what he means in the, there. Don't love the philosophies and the mindset of the world. Okay? And don't love the things of this world. But we are to love the people of the world. And, and so that's what he's referring to. Not just the elect, not just those who would believe. No, the world. God loved the world. But what does that mean? That means, listen, there are no nations beyond the love of God. Even those in Iran who assert that they hate Israel, God loves them. Uh, nor are there any people groups beyond the love of God. Uh, God loves the Italian. He loves the French. He loves the Argentinian, and he, yes, he does love the Canadian. Every people group, he loves. What an amazing truth. God loves the world. He loves you. He loves me. Charles Wesley said this, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be? And maybe that's a question you're asking today. How can it be that God would love me, that he would show his love for me, that he would send his son? Does he really love me that much? Many times we wrestle with this, we struggle with doubt. Uh, during World War II in New Jersey, Fort Hancock was a military training center, and there was a young man that wanted to reach the thousands of troops at Fort Hancock with the gospel. But the military authorities wouldn't allow him to go on the base. And so he contacted a local company, and he had them make thousands of three-inch diameter round mirrors. And on the back of the mirrors, he had printed John 3.16, and underneath the verse he had these words written. Uh, he had these words. If you want to see who it is that God loves, look on the other side. And so all these soldiers would open up their package and they'd see that and then they'd turn it around and see their own reflection. Who is it that God loves? God loves the world. God loves you. This morning, you may be tempted to doubt that, that you're beyond the love of God. I want to encourage you that God loves you. Second thing we need to note this morning about this verse is that love is a sacrificial gift. Amen? Okay, you weren't real jazzed on that. Love is, a, that's all I got today, guys. I don't know. Like, love is a sacrificial gift. It's not to be earned. Many of you tried to earn dad's love. You tried to earn your wife's affection. No, love is a sacrificial gift. God so loved that he gave his only son, okay? That phrase should immediately bring our minds back to what God commanded Abram to do with his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. You see, the Bible tells us that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. God would provide himself the Lamb. The cross wasn't plan B. It was intended all along because God so loved the world. He was willing to give his only son. Now, I wanna address something here. Um, 
When we think of God's love, listen, it's very purposed. It's not accidental, and it's not reckless, okay? Can I just step on everyone's toes a little bit this morning? I love you. That's why I got to say this. There's a song that came out. I know every one of you singing it. I get it. Someone's not, but a lot of you are. You're singing the song Reckless Love, and I get it. Uh, I understand the writer. The idea behind the song was like uh, to, to just speak about our perspective of God's love, and it just seems so reckless, and, and it's got a great guitar riff too, right? So uh, we kind of look at, at the love of God from the lens of a human perspective and say, well, God gets nothing in return by laying down the life of his son, okay? Now, I just want to say this clearly so I'm on record. I don't call that reckless. I call that love. Do you understand what I'm saying? I feel like reckless love is, is redundant. We're using the same idea, okay? Um, the definition of true love is not expecting anything in return, right? So when I love someone, I am, I am not, by nature of loving them, asking for anything um, back. I, so I don't need to define that as reckless. I don't think that's a great word. In fact, that's an awful word, I think, to describe God's love. Uh, and so if you're using it, you might as well just say his love, because his love doesn't ask for anything in return. Okay, that's kind of like saying that's a hungry dog, or that's a sleepy teenager, all right? We know every dog is hungry, and every teenager is sleepy. It's redundant. God's love is his love. It's not reckless in the way that a person gets a ticket for reckless driving. God's love is love. Listen, the definition of agape love is to lay down your life with no regard to your own priority or needs. The love of God is reckoned, and in the end, it achieves the ultimate goal, which is the glory of God. And that love is not just spoken from heaven or from theory, it's demonstrated to those least deserving, the people of the world. And it's demonstrated through the death of God's beloved son, Jesus. So I'm not just harping on the song, I'm just, I'm harping on the word. And the idea is that we would understand the love of God, the incredible reckoned love of God. Now, why would God give his son for you and for me? I mean, if you looked at that reflection in the mirror, why would he give himself for me? Why would he do that for me? Because of love. So simple, yet so profound. Now, how do we receive that love? What do we do? And that's the third idea I want you to jot down, is that number three, I receive the gift of God's love by faith. God gave his son, and we receive eternal life by believing in Jesus, placing our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, by looking to the son lifted on the cross. Whoever believes in him receives this free gift. Now, the bottom line is clear, though. Salvation does not come to all people, but to all who would believe. And so, listen, let me clarify. When I say believe, I'm not just saying mental assent. Like, yeah, I know, I've heard about Jesus. No, the idea is that we place all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust in Christ for salvation. There's a popular story told by missionaries about one particular tribe that a missionary was trying to reach, and as he was praying for the right word to translate belief, he couldn't seem to find it in their, their language. And so one day, one of the um, one of the natives had come from the other village and was exhausted, and he kind of threw himself onto uh, his hammock, and he breathed a big sigh and then said a word. And the missionary inquired, what, what word did you just say? And he said, oh, um, uh, I, I used a word that said, I'm resting all of my weight on my bed. And the missionary said, that is the word that we need for belief. The idea here is that I'm placing all of my weight of salvation, not upon my works, not upon my deeds, not upon my upbringing, my background, my religious affiliation, my straight white teeth. No, I'm laying all that I am upon Christ, 
upon the Son. I'm looking on the Son lifted up on the cross. And he alone is sufficient to save. Now Jesus says here to this religious man, whoever believes in him will not perish, but receive eternal life. The very next verse, verse 17, is what I call an orphan verse. Why? Because it's right after a verse that's very well known and then we don't really notice. It's kind of the little brother of the famous older brother. Okay, so look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. Why? Because of verse 18. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right, if you're keeping count with me, that, that's saying that the world is already condemned. So Jesus didn't come to heap more condemnation on the world. It's already a doomed creation. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. Okay? Just imagine with me, we're on the edge of a pool and there's a child who can't swim and they fall into the pool and they begin to sink. Now, can you imagine, instead of doing something, that I stand next to you and I just hold up a sign that says, you're going to drown, or I hold up this sign. God hates swimmers, right? And I start doing that at this poor kid who's, no, that would be silly. That would be, that would be awful, right? The idea is that we would jump into the water to save them. We would pull them out. I wonder how many believers or churches have the same mindset, where we just heap condemnation on those who are already condemned rather than reaching out to the man in the quicksand, rather than reaching out to the child in the pool and offer them the only hope of salvation. Our job isn't to condemn, it's to compel. It's not to heap condemnation on someone who's already condemned. Do we point out, hey, you're condemned, you're doomed. Okay, yeah, but we also point them to the only hope of salvation, Jesus. Listen, let me make this more personal. Jesus didn't come to condemn you, but he came to save you. And if you believe, you are no longer condemned. Uh, that's incredible news. Let me just give you the backstory. Uh, Chris, I'm going to skip a couple slides, but look at what Paul describes our life before Christ, our condition in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice this laundry list of, of, of accusations, and it's a little bit cut off, but here's Ephesians chapter 2. This is you, and this is me, pre-Christ, before we were in Christ. This is what we looked like. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were called the sons of disobedience. Huh. Uh, we also lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Parents, please don't call your kids that, by the way. Like, you children of wrath. Okay, don't, don't do that. I know you're tempted to. <sighs> it's summer. Okay. Uh, we were called the uncircumcision by the, the circumcised. We were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants, we had no hope and no God. That is your LinkedIn profile before Jesus. Not a great resume to offer to him. And so this is what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Hey, you're condemned already. Uh, D.A. Carson points out that Jesus didn't come into a neutral world to save some and then condemn others. No, he came into a lost world to save some. Not all will be saved, but God's purpose in sending his son was to bring salvation to all who would believe. Listen, the snake is bitten, and the venom is set in. And there's only one way of escape, and the way of escape is to look to the Son. And many will reject this free offer of salvation. J.C. Ryle said, nothing is so provoking and offensive to God 
as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son. Nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. You see, many rejected Moses' invitation to look upon the snake and live, and even so many reject the glorious remedy that Christ offers by looking upon the Son. Now today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he reminds you that you are not condemned. I want to go back to those verses, Chris. John chapter 5, Jesus says this in John 5, um, 24. Jesus points out, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Paul told the Romans in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, listen, I need to get some amens on this, but you should not be doubting your salvation. Amen. I'm still doubting it a little bit. Hey, you shouldn't have Sundays where oh, I feel saved today. The other Sundays, I don't feel saved today. It's not a feeling, folks. You've placed your faith in Jesus. That means you're born again. We're born from above. We're born of the Spirit. And so you're not going to perish, but you're going to have eternal life. That's a quality and a quantity of life that doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you believe. So we can rest our lives on the bedrock promise that those who believe absolute antithesis of eternal life. It's not just kind of, you know, slowly like drifting away. It means to receive complete condemnation, to be completely and utterly rejected. He says, that won't happen to you. You will receive salvation. You see, notice the two camps here. There's those who believe and those who don't. Those who are condemned and those who are saved. There's a third way to distinguish these groups, and that is those who are in darkness and those who are in the light. Look at verse 19. It says, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Another translation says this is the verdict. What's the verdict? Light has come into the world. Uh, light was already introduced by John the Apostle back in chapter 1 as Jesus, and later in multiple places, John uh, says that, uh, or captures that Jesus calls himself the light. We are, uh, as kind of an extension of Jesus, also the light of the world. Uh, but in the Bible, light is used symbolically in two ways. Uh, it can be used first to refer to God's holiness and thus, by extension, our holiness as his people. And so in that sense, darkness represents um, Satan uh, and sin. Uh, light equals holiness. But light, secondly, can also refer to illumination or understanding uh, as we're regenerated. So then darkness means that we were spiritually blind before we're born again. So it has those two ideas of holiness and of revelation. Uh, but here's the verdict. Uh, Jesus says that even though holiness and illumination have come into the world, men don't want that. They want to stay in blindness. They want to stay in the dark. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Look at verse 20. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Listen, guys, the reason people don't want to be enlightened with the gospel is that they don't want their evil exposed. They don't want their sin to be seen. Why? It's easy to hide in the dark. Uh, many men live lives of wickedness and they hate the light because the light exposes the darkness. 
All their evil deeds are laid bare, they're revealed. Paul said in Ephesians 5, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. See, many people prefer there was no light so I can just live my evil life and not feel condemnation from it. You guys know how this is, right? In the middle of the night, you hear a noise, and so you get up to investigate it, and, and you run to the kitchen, to the junk drawer, and you open up, and you reach for the flashlight. Who am I kidding? None of us have a flashlight anymore. That's the long tube that keeps your dead C and D batteries, if you don't know what a flashlight is. What do we use now? We take our phone, and we put on right, our flashlight. We just kind of do this, and now we're able to see what's making that noise, and it's a cockroach or a palmetto bug, if we're fancy. All right, and so we flip on the light. Light penetrates darkness. Why? Because darkness is simply the absence of light. Light pushes back the darkness. It illuminates what's there. Right? So someone practicing evil is living in a way that's contrary to the holiness and the truth of God. But according to Jesus here, everything in the dark will be exposed by the holiness and truth of God. We're seeing that in our culture today. Today we're living in a time when... Uh, People's past sins are being exposed. We have the Me Too movement and sexual misconduct that for decades went unnoticed is now being exposed. Listen, guys, people aren't rejecting the claims of Christ because they're stuck on some apologetic argument. Like, I would become a Christian, but I just don't understand Cain's wife, and I don't get the whole evolution-creation debate. And, and, you know, how many angels can God fit on the head of a pen? That's not why people are, are rejecting your uh, offer as you're evangelizing why? They reject the gospel because light equals exposure. They're laid bare. Listen, one day every evil thought, evil deed, secret sin, wicked attitude you've ever concealed, every lie you've thought and you've gotten away with, every scandalous transgression that you've achieved with your sly rejection of God's righteous law and you thought nobody knows, nobody sees, that will be brought out of the dark hidden place and shown for all to see. Though today in Hollywood, we do all we can to cover every blemish with makeup, lighting, Photoshop, all the imperfections brought into that spotlight will one day be revealed and judged. But look at verse 21. Jesus says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. In other words, some will come to the light of holiness and truth, and our deeds in Christ won't be sin, it'll be deeds, and those will reveal God's glory, not our, our wretchedness. And so we don't have to be dragged into the light, we come into it to reveal his glory. Stephen Cole says this, I love this, the Bible does not teach that we are basically good people who need to overcome a few flaws in our character. We're not merely in need of more education or learning some anger management skills so that we can develop better relational skills. We don't need to go through therapy to explore our past and figure out why our parents treated us as they did so that we can now understand why we are the way we are. He says this, all of these approaches to sin are too superficial from a biblical standpoint. The Bible shows that our root problem is that we love our sin rather than God's holiness. It's a matter of the heart and the only remedy that goes deep enough is the new birth which gives us new hearts that hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, today, like those bitten by the serpents, it all comes down to the idea, do I look or do I reject? We're gonna close, and I'm gonna invite Micah and Autumn to come back 
to close us in a time of communion. We're going to stay seated and receive the elements in just a few moments. During the song, you're going to get two cups. Uh, the, the cup on top has your juice, and underneath that has the bread. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're just kind of checking out Christianity, I want to ask that you would abstain from receiving the elements today. Just let them kind of pass. We would love for you to know Jesus and uh, next month receive communion with us as a Christ follower. But this is something that we do as a family. Jesus, like the bronze serpent, was lifted up on a wooden pole for all to see. Jesus was on display as the serpent was. Why was it a serpent? Because what brought the sting of death needed to be judged. Listen, Jesus, like the snake, was judged, was condemned on the cross in our place. It pleased the Father to crush the Son, to make an end of sin. And as Jesus from the cross lifted up, cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished, he declared deliverance and eternal life to all who would look to him for salvation. And just as those who were bitten were completely incapable of remedying themselves, but they simply needed to look on the pole. So those this morning who are already condemned in their sin, headed to an eternity apart from God, are unable, you're unable to do anything to save yourself. You only need to look upon the Son. Warren Wiersbe says this, sin and death came into this world through a look, Genesis 3.6. And the only deliverance from sin and eternal death is by a look of faith. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. To look means to exercise faith, and the only way to be saved is by faith. We open with that passage. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. This morning, church, Jesus has been lifted up. And if you would believe in him, you would not perish but receive eternal life. If that's too simple and it offends your sensibilities, I want you to know it's incredibly profound. I can imagine those laying in agony from the snake bite saying, no, I don't, I don't want, it's too simple. Maybe that's you here this morning. You feel like there's gotta be something more. But God has accomplished the work. And if you're banking on your own religiosity to save you, you're gravely and greatly mistaken. Only Christ can save. You compare your life maybe to a religious person, a good person, you say, well, maybe I'm not as good as them, but maybe God grades on the curve. You know, we lost this year recently an incredible man of faith, Billy Graham. Billy Graham did much to advance the gospel around the world, and Billy Graham said this once in a sermon. He said this, he said, I remember one night in the hospital, I thought I was dying, and my whole life came before me. And I didn't in that moment say to the Lord, I'm a preacher. I've preached to many people. He said, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. I still need your forgiveness. I still need the cross. Billy Graham's favorite hymn was Just As I Am. And on the screen, here's what the song, one of the verses says, I waited and waited for God. He turned and he heard me. He lifted me out of the mud. His own hands, they cured me. And the chorus says this, this is for all of us today, but maybe particularly for someone that needs to be reminded of this, just as I am, without one plea, 
but that your blood was shed for me. Would you bow your heads with me? I have a challenge for you this morning, church. My challenge is that you would throw yourself fully on the Lord Jesus, that your plea this morning would simply be the blood of Jesus. May our song only and always be his redeeming love. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you're looking to yourself, you're looking to your parents, you're looking to your deeds, then I have to tell you, brother or sister, you're condemned. You must look to the Son. Is there anyone here this morning that has not yet received Jesus publicly? You've never made a public profession of faith in Christ. And today you, with that message, realize that with conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're a sinner. You know that you have violated God's law and you want to receive Jesus as your Savior today. Is there anyone here this morning in this place? You'd raise your hand and say, that's me. Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to know Jesus. Just put your hand up and I want to pray for you today. Anyone this morning has not yet received salvation in Christ. I don't want the moment to pass if that's you. Well, while our heads are bowed, church, a closing quote, and you can keep your eyes closed. One theologian said this, when the church comes to understand the love with which God loved the world, she will be restless and ill at ease until all the great empires have been captured, until every coral island has been won. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that the love of God expressed to us in Christ would compel us to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, that every tribe, nation, and tongue would know the great love of the Father in giving of his Son. Help redeeming love to be our song, our anthem. We thank you for the love that we've received because of Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we receive the elements this morning, as we wait to take them together as a body, we would just examine ourselves and know, Lord, that it's nothing in me, no good in me, but it's all Christ. We commit this time to you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.